How you doing, everybody? Welcome back to our podcast today. It's good to come to you. It's been an interesting week, an exciting week. I've been looking at the people around me and wondering, what would they say about the book of Ecclesiastes? Many people would never read it because they find it depressing. They find it depressing because they don't pay attention to what's actually going on. Now, it is an unfortunate fact of life that it is difficult to keep life on an even keel. Now, I was born on a lake. So I was born getting a boating license before I had a driver's license. I love the water. I love being out there when it's quiet, when it's still, when I can hear the early morning and the bugs and just go fishing. And that was when I was a young kid. But you know what? If you're out there on the water and you're in a big craft, you need to make sure that craft has a good keel. Now, the purpose of a keel on a boat is to keep the ship upright and steady in the rolling tides. The big heavy keel underneath the ship helps it to sail straight, but also keep its mast in the air and its passengers dry. So now if the keel is too small or too light, the ship will tend to capsize in the waves. It won't be enough weight to keep it deep in the water to keep you safe. Now you know many of our lives are the same way. Life is full of storms, a lot of storms, physical storms, sickness, illness, death in the family. You know, also there's a lot of emotional storms. It could be trouble in a marriage, trouble in a friendship, uh, trouble within family members or at workplaces. There's a lot of things that cause confusion and storms in our life. Now, we, if we are looking at ourselves as ships going through life sailing, where's our keel? Where's that weight that keeps us steady? Let me tell you, the Word of God is our keel. It keeps us steady and upright no matter how much the wind blows, no matter how much the waves rock. The storm can do whatever it wants to do, but the Word of God will keep us in perspective. It will keep life in perspective so that no matter what's happening to us, we know where we are in the world. Now in our passage today, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Ecclesiastes 6, open up your Bible, get over there so you can see it and read it. There are three dis- three distinct directives, try saying that 10 times fast, three distinct directives that we remember to remain on course. No matter how tumultuous the day, no matter how many perils are fraught, no matter how many storms come up, we can stay on course above water by remembering these three distinct directives. Even as your life begins to draw to a close, if you are older like I am, if you are in your 60s, 70s, perhaps 80s, you can keep these three things in mind to keep you steady no matter what's happening in your life. The first thing that we see, the first of these three distinct directives is Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. And it's this, be happy with all that you have. TV, media, sales are all meant to make you feel that if you don't have this product or that product, the newest phone, the newest car, the newest innovation, that somehow you're not going to be happy because you're not going to be fulfilled. Let's see what the Word of God has to say about that idea today. Ecclesiastes 
Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. Sounds like Solomon has left the happiness that he has found in some of the other thoughts he has shared, and he's back in that funk. He's back in that terrible state where he is at the end of his life, and he just feels like he doesn't have it. It says in verse 2, God gives man riches wealth, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. God is the one who brings all that into your life, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. We all know people who seem to have it all together. They have everything that a person can want, and they're just not happy. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. Of course, this is Solomon thinking he's coming to the end of his life, his reign as the uh, king of Israel is closing down and he knows that when he dies, God is going to hand the kingdom over to another person and that person will lose part of the kingdom. The kingdom will be destroyed. He knows it's coming because God has said it's going to happen. So he will hand them over to somebody else. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. Many people get to the end of their life and all they want is more life. They don't want to do something powerful. They don't want to leave an impression, leave a legacy. They don't want to go out of this world knowing that they had left an influence. What they want is just more life, more time, another day. And it says right here that uh, this is a sickening and futile tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for he comes to futility and goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. Okay, this is Solomon again, reflecting on how he has wasted his life. He was the king. He had wealth. He had power. He had success. He had rulers from other countries coming to seek out his wisdom. Yet here he is at the end of his life, and he doesn't find joy in any of it. Now, in the culture of this time, children were everything. Children were considered a blessing from God. The more children you had, the more your blessings. In fact, the Old Testament says, may your life be like a quiver that holds many arrows, meaning having many children. Because in those children, you have all these great blessings. Now, we remember the oldest book in the Old Testament, the oldest story, goes back to the story of Job. Job was a wealthy man. He had everything that a person could want. He even had the greatest of blessings, which was seven sons and three daughters. And then because the accuser comes and and tells God, well, God, he's only faithful to you because you give him everything. Go ahead and take it away and see if he doesn't curse you and die. Of course, God allows this test to happen. He allows this to be done to show Satan that no, The true people of God will never turn on their God. They may have some internal qualms, and we've all been there, but in the end, he will not. It's interesting to note, and you may not have noticed this, at the end of the book of Job, after he has shown himself faithful, he has not railed against God. He has not decried God for making these decisions. The Lord gives him back double of everything that he lost except 
his children. At the end of the book of Job, he receives seven more sons, three more daughters. But if everything else was doubled, why didn't he receive double the children? Because here's the thing, people. Children are never lost. Even in death, they are still that blessing, that legacy that comes from us. Even if they are lost, they are still there at home with the Father, waiting for the day when we are reunited. Job did not have to have 14 sons and six daughters. He still had the original 10. God was just giving him 10 more for this life to enjoy as a blessing from his hand. So you see, if, if only Solomon could have been pleased with what he had, you know, he had all these wives, all these concubines, all this wealth, children and grandchildren, yet he found no joy in any of it, unlike anyone else in his time. And it made me think this week, wow, what would I say to people today? That's the book of Philippians. If, you're, if you have the time, flip over to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We know Philippians as one of the prison epistles. That is the most joyful. It brings the most happiness, the most comfort to all those who read it. And this is what Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low. He's in prison, so he knows how low low can be. And I know how to abound. In his time as an apostle, as one sent out, as one going to the world with the gospel of Jesus, he had no great comfort, great friends, great companions. He had seen great places. He had known the best of everything. And now in prison, he has known how to be brought low. In any and every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Wow. Sometimes he had more than he needed. Sometimes just not enough. Sometimes he was in those prisons and those prisons were underground and they were dark and they were dank and no doubt he suffered from the cold and the wetness and he suffered from the insufficient food. And of course, he goes through a whole litany of things of how many times he was beaten, stoned, left for dead. He goes through it all as he writes to these young believers in his time. And he says, I've learned the secret of facing it all. What's the secret? What secret do we need to know today? We live in a world full of violence, theft, greed. Uh, people mercilessly cut down and slaughtered for absolutely no reason. We see people who have so despaired of their own humanity that they become little more than ravenous wolves trying to eat up the innocent sheep. What is the secret to finding peace in this world? It's the next line. It's verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret for Paul in that prison was Christ. The secret for Job as he sat covered in boils, putting pot shares on himself and scraping himself and, and throwing ash on his head to show his agony of soul. His secret was his God would not forsake him. God was still there. God was still present at his loneliest moments. When Job had lost everything, especially his children, his old wife said, Job, why retain your dignity? Just go out there, curse God, and die. 
You know, it, it's not as bad as she was also hurting. She was hurting for Job. She didn't like to see him suffer. And I think in, in, in a moment of weakness, she said something rather silly, uh, rather thoughtless. But uh, it was only because she too was hurting. And he says, I've learned the secret to get through all this. And, and at the end, uh, Job learned it also. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's it. He learned how to be content. Uh, Church, if I could challenge you with anything, be content. Be content with where you are. Maybe you don't own a house. Maybe you don't have two cars. Maybe you don't have the greatest job. Maybe you just get by every week paying the bills. But at night you can lay down, you can sleep, you have food to eat, you have water to drink. You are more blessed than most of the world. I have been around this planet And there are those who every day suffer need and want and no medical care, no no heat when it's cold, no warmth, and, and, you know, just nothing. And it's, it's a terrible thing to see. But if you have Christ and if you have a bed to lay in and food and water, you need to be praising God every day and learn to say, Lord, I am grateful for what I have. And with what I have, I can go forward because that's the truth. We need to be grateful as a people of God. Now, the second thing, the second important point I want you to see is this. Do not waste your life on dreams. Now, those of you who've been listening to me for a while know some of what I'm about to say because I've said it before and I'll say it again. Don't waste your life on dreams. Media, TV shows, programs that that talk about health, wealth, prosperity, all this nonsense. All those things make us unhappy because we don't have them yet. But look what he says in Ecclesiastes 6-7. All man's labor is for his stomach to feed himself, yet the appetite is never satisfied. No matter how much you have, how nice of a car, how clean of a house, how warm and loving of a family. It's never enough because your eyes are always set on what everybody else has got. What advantage then does the wise man have over the fool? Because they both live in the same conditions. The wise man can be no richer, no more powerful, no more secure than the fool. So why, why struggle to maintain your integrity? He says, what advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? I've heard, I've heard people say, why should I be honest? Why shouldn't I lie and get everything I can? Why should I treat people fairly when nobody treats me fairly? Why can't I just live for myself and for this moment? And I think it's because right here is going to be your answer. Verse 9, better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Wow, better what the eyes see than wandering desire. I wonder what would happen if we shut off our TVs for 24 hours. If we shut off the TV and didn't see what everybody else has, didn't see what everybody else thinks is important. We don't watch those TV shows about the bold and the beautiful, the rich and the powerful, all those people out there that will never be us. And they only make us unhappy because we can never have what they have. Consider this, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. This is the Lord speaking, and he's speaking right to us in this day and age. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
That does not mean you can spend every dime you have and live on nothing. That's not what it means. It means don't make the focus of your life the acquisition of wealth and stuff. Don't make that the purpose. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow. You need to have a car to get to work probably or you need to have clothes to wear, new shoes on your feet, just so that you can you can get to where you're going. I'm not saying you don't pay attention to the things that you need in life, but don't make the acquisition of stuff your priority. Because there's nothing that you can buy that someone can't steal. There's nothing that you can have that someone can't take away. Every time tax season comes around, believe me, there's a lot that you might have, but there's always going to be someone to take it away. That's just the nature of the world that we live in. So he says, don't make that the focus of your life. Make the focus of your life being rich to God, which is in your relationship, your prayers, your reading of the scriptures, your, your meditations on who God is, what God is doing in your life, and doing in the lives of those who are around you. Consider this. Uh, the, the whole Harry Potter series was huge. The Harry Potter series, first as books and then as movies, was massive. In the very first one, um, Harry gets this warning about a mirror called Erised. Did anyone other than me first desire, I mean, first see that the word erised is the word desire spelled backwards? Did anyone notice that? I mean, I, I finally I finally figured it out, like, you know, after 10 or 20 years. But I mean, erised is desire. So it's the mirror of desires. And when Dumbledore finds Harry sitting in front of the mirror, he, uh, he says, oh, I see you've found the mirror of erised. And I guess you've figured out what its power is. And then he says, here's a caution, Harry. He says, this mirror gives us neither knowledge nor truth. Okay, stop right there. What does give us knowledge and truth? And that's the word of God. The word of God shows us the world for what it really is. The mirror of Erised showed you your deepest heart's desire. I think it's fascinating that Dumbledore says to Harry, he says, Harry, the happiest man in the world could look in that mirror and see himself exactly as he is. But the thing that was entrapping about the mirror is that very few people are content with who they are, where they are, and what they have. He goes on and says, you know, men have been driven mad looking into this mirror. They have wasted away to nothing, looking at things that are neither true nor knowledgeable. And then he gives them this last line. And I've always remembered this from the movie because it strikes so true for the Christian religion, for the Christian faith. He says, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. We have only a few hours before sunset, before the end of our life, or before the end of this age, when Jesus Christ will come and take us all home. We have a very short time to do the work God has set before us. When, we, when it's all over, when he calls us home, when the trumpet sounds, when we're gone out of here, then we have a chance to stop and to rest and to have a great time and to be with those who follow our God. And that's fantastic. But until then, we have things to do. We have people to talk to. We have prayers to make on behalf of other people. 
And we don't want to be like Carrie where we sit around dreaming of what could be instead of doing something about the life that we have. You have everything you need in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells you in the name of Christ, who gives you those gifts, who gives you that ability, and will give you the opportunity to make a difference if we seek for him to give us those opportunities. I'm talking about the thing, laying up the things of the world. You know, I remember this week the story of King Midas. You know, King Midas is already a king. He's already wealthy, but he wants more. He's insatiable. So he, he desires this touch of gold. Everything he touches turns to gold. And even though he got all the gold he could ever want, he lost everything and everyone that he ever loved. He got something that could not love him, could not touch him, could not feed him, nurture him, be beside him. All he had was gold, cold, hard, dead material. But there was no one to share that with. And that's why we do not waste our lives acquiring wealth that we can't take with us into the next life. The pharaohs tried, they failed. Solomon figured it out. You can't take it with you, baby. It stays here. So why not spend your life doing things that matter, that change eternity for somebody else? And that's what we learn. There's nothing in this world worth dying for. There's only one thing that's worth giving our lives to, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The third thing I want you to see is very simple. You cannot defeat God. When I was a kid, there was a great song, and the song was called, Your, your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. And I thought that was a great line. I remember the song even now. I can hear it in my head, even though I don't have the ability to sing. I can't sing it for you. But I can tell you, it says, your arms are too short to box with God. And, with, and by God, I mean Jehovah, the true God of all things. You can't fight God. You can't win because it's a no-win situation. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 6.10. Whoever exists was given its name long ago. So whatever there is was named a long time ago. Whoever there is was named a long time ago. And it is known what man is. We know what man is. He's a breath. He's a mist. He's temporary. He's here for a while and then he's gone. It's what you do with that time, you know, between the dates, what you do with the dash. But he is not able to contend with the one who is stronger than he is. That's what you need to learn. You can't beat God. You can't fight God. Satan tried tried to come equal to God and he failed and he was cast down because of it. We know that. Why? Because Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus saw him defeated and Jesus was still standing. Verse 11 says this, for when there are many words, they increase futility. We try to convince ourselves. We try to convince ourselves that we're winning. There are many anti-theists out there who believe that somehow they've defeated God. They've defeated God with science or they've defeated God by putting out this propaganda that says the church is dead. The church is over. The church needs to change. The church needs to get rid of the past and, and do something new. They think they've won, but God is eternal. So this is when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for man to do all this? For who knows what is good for a man in life in the few days of his feudal life? Who knows? God knows. That's why the entire Old Testament, the entire talk of the entire book of Proverbs was written to show us what was good for this time. Heck, even chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for this, a time for this, a time to be born, 
And honey, it's a time to die. It's what you do between the birth and the death that matters. For who knows what is good for a man in life in the few days of his feudal life than to spend it like a shadow? Who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? Well, that's easy. The Bible tells us again and again what will happen to the man after he dies. It tells us where we go. Jesus said it. It is appointed unto a man once to die, then the judgment. That's all you have to know. No matter who you are, you make a decision today on what you believe will happen after you die, and you will suffer the consequences of that choice. If you say, I'm an atheist, I don't know there's anything out there, I don't believe anything, I'll let it happen. It'll happen, but you won't like the consequences. If you want to be something else, an anti-theist or a Satanist or a Wiccan or whatever religion you choose, you can choose that religion, but you are choosing in that religion the consequences of your choice. I choose Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. I once had a, uh, an anti-theist say, well, what happens when you die and there's nothing there? I said, I won't know anything, will I? He said, what? I said, well, if I'm wrong, I'm not, by the way, if I'm wrong, I'll never know it. I said, and if you're right, you won't know it either. There's no victory dance after you die if you're right. If you're right, it's all this tragic end of everything. But if I'm right, then you have something truly that is tragic to deal with, which is the consequences of your choice. If you want to talk about defeating God, you have to go right back to the book of Job. Job chapter 42. God has, has allowed Job to be tempted. He's allowed Job to go through these things. And then Job tears off on a tirade. Now, everyone out there who's ever said, he has the patience of Job. Yeah, Job was patient for a while. But right there at the end of the book, he tears into God. He just lets it loose because he's just, he's had it. And then God says, oh, oh, you want to fuss at me? Come ahead. Let me show you what you're going to do. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Do you hear that, church? I know that God... Yahweh can do anything, and no plan of his can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this who contends, who conceals my counsel with ignorance? So who's the one fighting me? Who's the one trying to say that I'm not right, that I am wrong to do this? Who is it that does this? And then Job says, surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you. Church, pay attention. This could be you right now today. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words, and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, for many people, what they call faith is believing the stories they were taught as children. They never look at them up. They never go to the Bible. They never source it out. They never make sure exactly what's there, make sure that their parents were right or the pastor was right or whatever. But this says, Job says, when I was young, I heard all about you. I heard about how amazing you are. But now, now my eyes have seen you. Now I know you for your amazingness, for your incredibleness, for being the God of all creation, the all-powerful being, the I am.
He says, and I repent in dust and ashes because I was so, so wrong. You see, that humility of coming to God and saying I was wrong is exactly what we do as Christians today. When we are lost, when we are sinners, when we do not want to recognize that there's a God over us, when we want to be our own God, the maker of our own choices, the sealer of our own fate, See, then we are like Job. We, we, we say, I, 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 I think, I believe. But when you really see Jesus Christ for who he is, for who he was on the cross, for who he was in the power of the resurrection, when we see Almighty God is the one who not only made us, but the one who provided salvation for us, when we see that, we will repent in dust and ashes. Not because God wants to punish, but because we see how incredibly inept and weak we are. But see, in our weakness, in, in our lostness, God's love is still so powerful. It reached out. Solomon could have just gotten on his knees at this moment in chapter 6 and said, Yahweh, God of my fathers, I was a fool. I was wrong. Life is good. You are good. Your plan is good. I messed up, God, and I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Please restore me. David did it in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's repentance for the silly and stupid and wasteful things he did. Killing his best friend, stealing his wife, all of the things that David did, which were reprehensible and that brought about... Uh, all the pain and the agony and the suffering in the kingdom. You see, we have a great privilege today. We can actually go through and see our lives change when we're willing to get down there. Now consider Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10, and we will be done, we will be done today. Consider this in the light of all that we've said. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It came from the Lord. And he says this, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So he went down to the potter's house, and there he was working on his wheel. He was working at the wheel, you know. You would turn the wheel with your feet to shape the clay with your hands. And the vessel he was making was spoiled in the potter's hand. That means it wasn't the right shape. It wasn't the right consistency. It wasn't exactly what the potter wanted. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. See, so the potter is the master. He is the one with the vision. And when the clay is not responding the way it should, when it doesn't act the way it should, maybe it's a little too dry, it's a little too wet, he has to take it and work it and shape it again into a useful vessel. Whatever your life was like, whatever you did with your life, if your life's a mess, God can take you, put you back on the wheel, rework you into a magnificent work of art that reflects the glory of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? See, he was working on, on Israel. He was going to send them into captivity to break them, to bring them back. But he says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and tear down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent 
of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have had intended to do to it. And of course, he would let Israel fall. Israel would not repent. They would not come back. So yes, they would go into captivity for 70 years. They would go into Babylon. They would be spread out there far from their country, far from their home. And it would take the coming of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. Cyrus, the one named in the scroll of the Lord, who would come, release them, send them home after 70 years with wealth and power and authority to rebuild the house of God to rebuild the walls of Israel under Nehemiah, and then God would bring them back into the land and restore them as he promised he would. But of course, Israel had a problem. Every time God got them back on their feet, got them straight, they would lapse back into their silly, foolish behavior. Solomon was the same way. At any time, Solomon could have relented. And we've seen only in the first six chapters of Ezekiel, I mean, uh, of Ecclesiastes, that in Ecclesiastes, he is, he is negative, he is down, then he finds hope. Then he's negative and he's down and he sees a little hope again. Then he's negative and he's down and he just keeps lapsing into that negativity that is part and parcel of what his life has become through that time. We're going to stop right there for today. I want you to think about your life. Your life is still on the potter's wheel. God is still working on you, shaping you into that vessel that he can use for his glory, for his honor, and to save those whom you come in contact with. Remember, Paul said, I plant Apollos waters, but it is the Holy Spirit who reaps the harvest. God bless you this week. May he send you someone that you can share the gospel with. And until next week, may God bless you with all of his words from the Wildwood.